Welcome to Music for Life, enhancing the Armstrong concert experience. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. In today's episode, we explore the great material regarding music education from the first two seasons of our program in a segment I called Classroom Corner. These included practice tips for the solo student and parents of young soloists, the benefits of certain classroom curricula in the field of music, plus some exclusive interview moments with prominent musicians who have been featured on the Armstrong Auditorium stage as they talked about these educational aspects of music. We will also hear a few great musical examples of pieces intended to further the education of the music student. So stick around for the best of Classroom Corner today on Music for Life. We are approaching the final few episodes of our third season of Music for Life. This season, I have geared the shows toward discussing components of music history that will have direct payoff at the Armstrong Auditorium concerts of this season, hence our show's tagline, Enhancing the Armstrong Concert Experience. For our first two seasons, we showed how to appreciate and be enriched by fine art music by taking a slightly different approach. In those seasons, I chose a particular theme for each episode, one that was prevalent throughout music history, and we listened to examples of pieces that fit into that theme, and the examples spanned music history from the so-called Baroque era to the 20th or 21st centuries. We also had recurring segments that helped us explore our theme from different angles. We usually started with a recurring segment called Sounds of Scripture, where we explored the Bible's 300-plus references to music to get a longer sweeping view of that episode's theme of music history. I summarized these in episode 64, which served as our final Sounds of Scripture segment. Back in the first season only, when the show was twice as long as it is now, we also had a segment called Backstage Banter, where I interviewed performers on the concert circuit today for their perspectives on music. But another segment that was a regular occurrence for both of the first two seasons was a classroom corner segment where we explored different methods and curricula for introducing young people to music as related to the show's theme. So today I plan to summarize and give a best of these segments. Some of these segments involved interviews with some high-profile artists who were performing that season at Armstrong Auditorium. Some of these interviews were with accomplished musicians and music educators from right here in the central Oklahoma community, as you will hear from today. And as a music educator, I'm really excited about this episode being a condensation of all the great material we've covered in those first two seasons. Now, just so that our episode isn't all talking, I want to play some musical examples to intersperse between these segments. The theme I've chosen for these pieces will be similar to those I played in an episode called Music for Education, where we explored compositions that were intended to serve as a teaching tool, and that seems fitting to showcase in an episode like this. Let's start with one of those examples. In that episode on educational compositions, we heard one example from the Baroque era first, a time period as far as music is concerned, 
concerned, ranging from the mid-17th to the mid-18th centuries. In this era, the composer Johann Sebastian Bach was known for composing small pieces to develop the skills of his keyboard students. In this category of compositions are the six short preludes for beginners and the two-part inventions, a type of keyboard work that requires significant independence of the hands. He also wrote suites and other larger instrumental works for his students, but in that episode we played an example of a famous two-part invention, the one in F major. Today, let's hear another to serve as our first musical example. This is pianist Andras Schiff playing the well-known A minor invention. Andras Schiff played the well-known A minor invention by Johann Sebastian Bach, a piece that teaches independence of the hands. And that's part of our Best of Classroom Corner episode here today. Several of these Classroom Corner segments in our first two seasons focused on the benefits of learning particular kinds of instruments, which we discussed whenever an episode was featuring a particular instrument family. We talked about the benefits of your child learning the violin, as well as benefits of starting your child on a keyboard board-based instrument like the piano. We talked about the benefits of certain instruments in the classroom environment, particularly the percussion family and the recorder. Here's the segment about the benefits of learning the violin. A 2008 Harvard-based study found that those who take three or more years of violin do better on vocabulary and IQ tests than those who do not take music lessons. Physically, a violin student will find that their upper body strength will increase, resulting in better posture. Violin teachers are strict about the posture. It also improves flexibility and strength of the fingers over time. The simultaneous motions of bowing with the right hand and pressing the strings with the left hand improves coordination and motor skills. Learning the violin also provides social opportunities for students learning in a group setting, There is also intrinsic musical value to learning the violin or a similar fretless stringed instrument. Learning violin as a preliminary instrument is beneficial to a young musician because it develops auditory precision. Even the slightest adjustment of those left fingers on the fingerboard alters the pitch. So the student is trained to recognize any tuning flaws and be able to fix them. This, along with the development of coordination mentioned earlier, will benefit young musicians as they begin to take on new instruments. 
And here's the segment about the benefits of learning a keyboard instrument. Studies find that students who play piano in particular score higher on math exams, particularly on problems dealing with fractions and ratios. The complexity of both hands working independently of each other improves a student's fine motor skills and complex thought processes. Reading musical notation for two separate hands requires a great deal of concentration, translating what is written on the page to independent hand movements. The requirement to play multiple notes at the same time can even provide the student deeper awareness of the theory, or grammar you could say, of the musical language. There are also music appreciation benefits. Students who play such a historically significant instrument also can become well-rounded in their understanding of music history and therefore develop a greater appreciation for a variety of different composers. Additionally, the skills and knowledge developed from playing the piano will help students pick up other instruments later on as the piano requires them to become familiar with both treble and bass clefs, the most common clefs for other musical instruments, the principle of breaking down the music learning process into separate components, like hands-alone practice, will come in, well, handy when deciding to learn any other instrument. Next up is a snippet from the benefits of percussion instruments in the classroom. The immediate feedback from these instruments is quite satisfying for children, which is why so many five-year-olds tell me that the instrument they want to learn is drums. So don't be alarmed, parents. That's normal. But it's not just satisfying for children to play these kinds of instruments. It's also educational. This helps develop a basic understanding of beat, tempo, meter, rhythm, and rhythmic patterns early on in a child's life. When a child hears the sound an instrument makes when it is struck, it helps them link sound and movement. This stimulates the left and right hemispheres of the brain, developing stronger motor responses. Also, when playing the instrument, new nerve connections are created in the brain, improving their dexterity. And here's a snippet from the classroom corner about the benefits of the recorder in young music classrooms. The student simply has to put his or her mouth around the mouthpiece and blow gently. There is no requirement for a developed embouchure, those lip muscles required to play any other instrument with a mouthpiece, which usually also requires specific positions of the tongue and teeth. It does require a basic amount of breath support, which is good for students of a young age to learn, and something totally attainable. So the students are learning basic breathing techniques. They are also learning how to read music, rhythms and pitches, by playing an instrument that can only play one note at a time. And this is helpful when working in a classroom dynamic. What note is that? What do you say? Every good, every good boy. So it's note D. There you go. So go from, go from this note B up to D and then we'll continue. This is one of our teachers at Imperial Academy, Alicia Lancaster, who assists me quite a bit in researching and writing for this program. Actually, let's do a little review. Let's go to page 21, so turn back. And she teaches the third grade recorder class at Imperial Academy this year. So, who wants to go first? Three, four, one. Two, three, four, one. 
So students are learning basic breathing techniques. They're also learning basic things about reading music, rhythms, and pitches. But also changing the pitch on the recorder is easier than on a flute or other instruments that require a series of key combinations. The recorder has a series of small holes drilled into the tube that allow for pitch changes, depending on which ones are covered with the fingers. And these holes are a good size for small hands and small fingers. Right there. <laughs> That's your E right there. All these down. Make sure you're covering all the holes. All right, Tara. Even if students don't plan on learning other wind instruments down the road, it helps develop some basic musical and ensemble skills. And by about third grade, most children have developed enough muscle coordination to control this small, manageable instrument. Those were some segments about the benefits of particular instruments in early music education, either in terms of private lessons or in a classroom setting. Let's hear another musical example, which has been inspired by the Music for Education episode we did back in Season 1. It's Episode 9, by the way, if you want to look in the archives for that full episode. And in that one, I played a piece Beethoven had written for a student of his. The piece is his 10th Violin Sonata, which is a work for violin and piano. Beethoven wrote the piano part with this student in mind. And this student played the piano part for the premiere of this work alongside a prominent violinist of the day. The piano student was none other than Archduke Rudolf of Austria, to whom Beethoven dedicated 13 other of his compositions. In the earlier episode where we talked about this work, I played some of the first movement. Here's a little of the short scherzo movement, the third movement of this four-movement sonata. We're hearing a recording of David Oistrock violin and Lev Oberin piano. David Oistrock played the violin in that recording of Beethoven's Violin Sonata No. 10, Third Movement. Lev Oberin played the piano part in that recording, a part that was originally written for and premiered by Beethoven's eminent student, Archduke Rudolf of Austria. 
Before we heard that in this Best of Classroom Corner episode, we were discussing our Classroom Corner segments that talked about the benefits of learning specific kinds of instruments. Along similar lines, we also discussed the benefits of singing in an ensemble as relates to health in an episode about the health properties of music. Here's a snippet from that episode. The elation of singing in a choir or singing as a class may come from the release of endorphins, oxytocin, and the neurotransmitter dopamine. Endorphins are hormones associated with feelings of pleasure, and oxytocin has been found to alleviate anxiety and stress. Singing in groups is particularly bonding as oxytocin is known to enhance feelings of unity and coherence. Additionally, dopamine is associated with feelings of pleasure and alertness. Studies have shown that feelings of depression and loneliness lessen when this hormone is released. One study found that singers tend to have lower levels of cortisol, a hormone which is present in higher quantities when one has high stress levels. Another study conducted by researchers at a university in Sweden concluded that the heart rates of choir members became synchronized As they sang in unison, pulse monitors were attached to the singer's ears, and researchers found that as the choir sang, their heart rate slowed. This is because as the singers exhaled, their heart rates would slow down, as noted by musicologist Bjorn Vikhoff, leader of the research project. He was surprised at how quickly the singer's heart rates became synchronized. So, to keep our children healthy, we might tell them to get some fresh air, to get some sleep, or to eat their vegetables. Here's one more thing we can add to the list of activities that contribute to good health. Singing in choirs, music classes, or other groups. In addition to its educational musical value, a chorus a day might just keep the doctor away. This has been Classroom Corner. As relates to singing, we had two interviews with my wife and soprano Paula Malone, who teaches on the voice faculty here at Herbert W. Armstrong College. She talked about the best age for your child to begin voice lessons. It's not unlike, say, ballet. A good teacher would not let a young child go on point until their bones and their feet are ready to do that, or they could damage their feet for the rest of their lives and never be able to become a dancer. It's the same kind of thing. The mechanism just needs to be matured enough to handle the demands that this art form would put on it. And she also discussed why voice teachers give students songs to sing in foreign languages, which has to do with the purity of the vowels required in foreign language pieces. The perfect version of the pure vowel in your mouth translates anatomically to a lip shape, a jaw height, and a tongue position. Those three things, you add them together and you get a perfect vowel. You can change any of that and you'll get an imperfect version of that vowel. A lot of what we do is is we try to find each singer's perfect version of each pure vowel. And that is going to represent their tone better than anything else. As relates to private music instruction, many of the Classroom Corner segments focused on various aspects of the students' personal practice time. In an episode about night music, we talked about whether or not the time of day a student practices has any effect on the success of that session. In an episode about great interludes and intermezzi, we talked about the benefit of breaks in the practice session. 
In episode 45, we talked about the value of isolating elements to make for more effective practicing and how different instrumentalists implement this technique. We talked about quantity of practice versus quality of practice. We discussed the benefits of specific technical exercises, which I won't play here, but you can find in the archives in episodes 57 and 58. Here are a few short snippets from a few of these aforementioned episodes. First, here is one about the benefit of breaks in the practice session. Truly effective practice takes a lot of effort and is mentally draining. It has been said that when Nathan Milstein asked his teacher, Leopold Auer, how long he should practice each day, he was told, practice with your fingers and you will need all day. Practice with your mind and you will do as much in one and a half hours. This isn't as much a quote advocating only 90 minutes of practice a day, but a quote that shows how effective 90 minutes can be if we focus. Also implied is the fact that our concentration can only last for so long. So this quote is actually getting across the need for taking breaks when practicing over long periods of time. Here is a snippet from the classroom corner about the best time of day to practice. Jeff Colvin, in his book Talent is Overrated, recounts a study conducted in the late 1990s performed on students of the Music Academy of West Berlin. Professors of the academy were asked to select students to represent three different categories. Those who were exceptional and had potential to become world-class solo performers, those who were very skilled but not quite to the standard of the first group, and those who weren't as good. One of the interesting finds of the study was that the first two groups, the more exceptional ones, practiced mostly in the later part of the morning or early in the afternoon. However, the students in the third group had a tendency to practice in the late afternoon, which was when they were generally more tired. It is also interesting to note that the two higher-performing groups slept more at night and also took afternoon naps. Though it may not be feasible to practice late morning or early afternoon, nor is an afternoon nap always practical either, the idea of choosing a time of day when the student is most fresh and rested might be the difference between mediocrity and getting the most return on your investment. In one episode, I told the story of a pottery teacher who graded two sections of a class in two different ways one semester, one based on the quality of pots and one based on the quantity of pots. In short, the quality side of the room didn't have as good of pots as the quantity side because they made fewer pots, just focusing on the one perfect pot. The quantity side, unconcerned about quality, just kept making pots, and in the process, became much better at the art of pottery by this amount of experience. I related that to the young musician's practice time. The lesson is, to get better at something, do it a lot. It won't be great every time, but in the end, when it's time for the final grade, you will see that the practice and experiences have paid off all the bad pots forgotten. That doesn't mean that sheer quantity of practice supersedes quality of how the time is spent, as we've talked about in this segment on previous episodes, but it does show the benefit of just getting in the practice, not necessarily fixating on the perfect pot if it's not happening, not getting bogged down in momentary setbacks or even failures, but simply just making a pot and coming back to make more and more pots in the days to come, finally to see a significant quality improvement over time. 
So that was a group of classroom corner segments that had specifically to do with tips for the solo student's personal practice time. We talked about other things that benefit the solo music student. In episode 49, an episode that focused on great duets of music history, we discussed how performing with at least one other person helps the solo instrumentalist to grow. In an episode about music written to celebrate victories, we talked about the value of competitions for developing young musicians. By giving all these tips, we clued parents in on what their role is in the process and how they can help their child make the most out of the practice sessions. In an episode about famous composers whose fathers were also great musicians, we talked to the non-musical parents about what they can listen for to know if their children are getting the most out of their practice time. And I won't play a segment of this because we have this segment already excerpted out and placed on our SoundCloud page. But I do want to play something that relates to that. This was from an interview with Grammy-winning cellist Sarah Santambrosio, and it was not in a classroom corner segment, but she talked briefly in her interview about how her expertise as a musician helps her in encouraging her son in his music studies. I took him on stage with me on a concert. You know, he said something about, I'm, you know, I'm a little worried that I'm going to make a mistake. And I said, it's very possible because we're human, but there's no such thing as a mistake on stage. Everything that happens on stage is an opportunity, an opportunity to stretch as your, for yourself, but it's also an opportunity to bond with the audience. So I said, you know, you're on stage with me. Nothing bad can happen because no matter what happens, we're going to turn it into something beautiful. Mm. So just remember that. And then he played so... We had two concerts that he, I had him play with me, and it was shockingly beautiful. I couldn't believe it. It actually made tears come to my eyes. We had another Classroom Corner segment that helped homeschooling parents provide music education for their younger children. That was in episode two about the orchestra. And we talked specifically in that segment about the role of symphony orchestras in music education, particularly in the official websites they are producing, containing much educational material aimed at young children, as well as putting on free concerts during the day to perform for school field trips. Again, that's episode two in part two of that program if you want to find it on SoundCloud, iTunes, or kpcg.fm. Let's have another musical example now. This is an etude. It's a French word for study, if you don't recall. This one is for unaccompanied cello by David Popper. It studies the player's ability to play double and triple stops. That means bowing two or three strings at a time, while also occasionally plucking with the left hand the hand that usually holds down the string on the fingerboard to change the pitch. This is Janos Starker in a recording of Popper's Etude in F Major, Opus 73, Number 34.
You are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. In today's episode, we are exploring various aspects of music education by playing and summarizing our program's Classroom Corner segments, which was a significant feature in our first two seasons. And for musical examples today, we are playing examples of compositions that were written for students or to have some educational value for the performer. We just heard an example from the Romantic era, David Popper's Etude in F Major, Opus 73, number 34, for unaccompanied cello in that recording by Janos Starker. Back to our discussion of these classroom corner segments, many of them focused, as the segment's name would suggest, on the classroom aspects of music education. In other words, how music education is approached in more of a group setting. We talked about the role of folk music and patriotic music in the classroom, the function of choral ensembles in music education, as well as the role of improvisation and spontaneity. We talked about the importance of praise, humor, movement, imitation, and mimicking. We talked about the benefits of a co-educational classroom. We talked about the building blocks of melody that were made famous in The Sound of Music and where those syllables came from. Along the lines of music education history, we also talked about what music education was like back in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. And that Classroom Corner segment was about how music in those times was considered a basic subject rather than mere window dressing to the curriculum. So let's hear some snippets from some of these segments. To kick these off, I want to play a segment of an interview we had with oboist David Price, who plays in the Oklahoma City Philharmonic, but who also taught band in the public school system for over 30 years. He shared some of his experience with us. It's seemingly been proven that students that are in band or orchestra, actually, or chorus, seem to have a greater ability to do math It's also a good chance to be in a community and get along with each other. Even though you may not like the other flute player that's sitting next to you, you are all headed toward a common goal. Hmm. And if you don't work together, whether you like each other or not, you will fail. So it's teaching a team. Yeah, it's community spirit. It's... Is how to get along with other people, whether you like their values or not. So, a needle pulling thread, la, a note to follow, so, tea, a jingle jam and bread, that will bring us back to dough. That's a famous moment in the musical The Sound of Music, performed there by Julie Andrews, where her character was teaching music to children. And what she's doing is introducing these children to the basic building blocks of melody. And the device she is employing is called solfege, which gives seven distinct syllables to the seven pitches of the scale. Now, in that Rodgers and Hammerstein song, the character is giving a mnemonic for how to remember those seven names. Now, these seven names have been used in music education for so many years now, and by assigning syllables to specific degrees of the scale, you can better recognize certain musical intervals. It also teaches that the tonic note, or the home note, where everything goes back to, as Julie Andrews sang, is do. So it teaches even the tendencies of these pitch relationships. Now, thanks to The Sound of Music, young music students have a catchy tune to remember all these names for pitches in the scale. But this system actually goes back long before that musical, and it was likely connected to a Latin hymn of the 11th century. There's a hymn that starts on what we might call the tonic note, 
The hymn begins with the phrase, Ut quant laxis. The next phrase of the text begins a step higher, Rezonare fibris. Then the next phrase of the text begins a step higher than that, Mira gestorum. The next phrase a step higher, Famuli tuorum. The next phrase a step higher, Solve poluti. And the next phrase, Labi reatum. These six initial syllables to each line, ut, re, mi, fa, so, la, are the first six degrees of our major scale. The last two words of the hymn are Sancte Johannes, and the abbreviation in Latin is S-I. And the word C, spelled S-I, began to be associated then with the only scale degree not present in that hymn, the seventh scale degree. So now we had a syllable for each scale degree of the heptatonic scale. Ut, re, mi, fa, sol, la, si. Now, that sounds a little different than what the character Maria sings in The Sound of Music. It is believed that an Italian by the name of Giovanni Battista Doni in the 1600s changed ut, the first syllable, to do. And then a couple hundred years later, a woman by the name Sarah Glover changed the last syllable, C, to T. And the reasoning was that now each scale degree began with a different consonant. So then we had Do, Re, Mi, Fa, So, La, T. A Hungarian author and composer came along. Zoltan Kodai was the one who really institutionalized the solfege system into modern music education. And he thought this approach best develops the young child's inner musical ear. He believed it taught certain basic music reading skills through singing that prepared students to eventually learn an instrument. And solfege and this Kodai method or elements of this method are used today by music students of all ages because it builds musical skills like sight singing, ear training, how to hear and sing in harmony, and in developing musical memory. By learning these simple, seemingly arbitrary one-syllable names for each pitch, you learn the basic pitch ingredients for any musical dish. Or, as Julie Andrews sang, when you know the notes to sing, you can sing most anything. This has been Classroom Corner. In an episode titled Hallelujah, our classroom corner focused on the value of praise in music education, and more specifically, what should be praised. In a study performed at the University of Northern Iowa, fourth grade students were evaluated on their response to praise after a simple rhythm tapping test. Students were divided into three groups. The first group was given verbal praise for their effort. The second was given verbal praise for their talent and the last group was given no praise to act as a control group. After the first rhythm test, students were all told that they got a score of 85, regardless of their performance. They were told that this was a good score, followed by being praised for getting the rhythms right, the first group, or being praised for being talented at music, the second group, or not being praised at all, the third and control group. Then the students were given another rhythm test, 
This test had more challenging rhythms, and students were given the choice between doing a rhythm test that they were told would either show off their skill or a test that might be more challenging that they would learn from even if they didn't play them correctly. Those in the group that had been told they were talented were more likely to pick the rhythms that they were told would show how good they were, while those in the group that had been praised for their efforts were more likely to choose the more challenging rhythms. The group that received no extra praise was equally split in their choices. So this study showed that children who are praised for their effort rather than their talent are more likely to set learning goals for themselves and push themselves to do better. And here are some great facts about the use of humor in the music classroom. Music educator Sarah Given teaches middle school and high school orchestra and serves as one of the conductors for the Columbus Symphony Youth Orchestra program. And she says this, Research supports the use of humor in the classroom, citing that teachers who employ humor facilitate the retention of information, increase speed of learning, improve problem solving, relieve stress, reduce test anxiety, and increase student perception of teacher credibility. Hyatt felt that the real purpose of humor in the classroom was using enjoyment to link teacher and student, which is the essence of teaching anyway. Other studies found that humor helps reduce classroom tension, helps students handle failures in an appropriate way, makes concepts more memorable, and helps develop a sense of community. Given says that these jokes and inside jokes between teacher and classroom can buy you a lot more focus from the students. We talked about the benefits of a co-educational music classroom after having established the benefits of a co-educational school on the whole, as our namesake Herbert W. Armstrong wrote commonly about. One Cambridge professor believes that mixing boys and girls at a young age is important even from a non-musical standpoint. Boys participate more in classroom discussions through interaction with girls, and girls are more willing to take risks in problem solving when they interact with boys. Here is a segment from the Classroom Corner about the function of folk music in the classroom. Sultan Kodai and Karl Orff were two 20th century composers who were also influential in the field of music education, and both incorporated folk tunes as a means of teaching young people important musical concepts, developing good musicianship, and instilling a respect for cultural heritage. In Kodai's own words, there is no denying that it is here in folk song that the most perfect relationship between music and language can be found. Folk tunes are included in the curriculum of many music institutes today who hold these same values. The Orff Institute in Salzburg, Austria, established by Karl Orff in 1961, is dedicated to training music teachers for education in music and dance or movement in schools. The American Orff Schulwerk Association offers training programs at 50 universities across the United States. And because folk music is a major element of both the Orff and Kodai methods, it is an element common to both training programs. This has been Classroom Corner.
That was a variety of clips from past Classroom Corner segments that specifically discussed how music education is approached in the classroom, ending with a famous excerpt from a composition by Carl Orff, one of the leading music educators we discussed frequently in these segments. Some of the discussion about music education in a classroom setting was centered specifically around the music curriculum taught here. I, of course, have frequently referenced my approach to teaching music appreciation at the college level. I did that more thoroughly in our program's very first episode. But throughout the seasons, we've also discussed how music education is approached specifically at our K-12 through institution, particularly as relates to the younger groups grades as they first start out. And I think it's wonderful that we can constantly point our children here to the world-class talent performing at Armstrong Auditorium on this campus. These variety of performers have given us plenty of interview opportunities for this show. And as we've already seen today, many of the Classroom Corner segments included interviews with well-known musicians and or experienced music educators. One of my favorite interviews was with a professor of one of the Great Courses series, Dr. David Kung, a college math teacher who was also a musician who talked about the connections that learning math have with learning music. I think that every subject should enhance everything else. So I think that you're a better musician if you understand the history behind things. You're a better musician if you understand the physics behind your instrument. And you're a better musician if you understand the mathematics that underlies a lot of the music you're playing. Many of our interviews in the Classroom Corner segments related to a specific aspect of teaching that the musician addressed. For instance, Celino Romero of the world-renowned Romero Guitar Quartet talked specifically about his quartet's annual summer institute for guitar students and their approach to teaching. It's amazing how fast being taught correctly and having, you know, patience, of course. You can really learn fast. It takes a lot of, you know, there's a lot of tricks that are that are there that uh, we've learned throughout all the years of, you know, from my grandfather, father and uncles, me and my cousin. So, um, but of course, you got to put in your time, like everything. In an episode about brass instruments, principal trumpeter with the Oklahoma City Philharmonic, Dr. Carl Sievers, talked about his unique approach to teaching the trumpet. I always wanted to teach because the most important people in my life, other than my family, have been my teachers. Essentially, it's getting the causes and the results in the right place. And I Mm. suggest that contemporary music education has that backwards, that you can't teach physical skill by teaching the mechanics, that you instead focus on the product so well-defined and with such commitment that the mechanics, the, the part of your brain that tells the muscles what to do, now has the information it needs to tell those muscles what to do. A trumpet-playing teenager and founder of a nonprofit organization that honors U.S. military veterans talked about how she is educating her peers in the proper way to play taps at veterans' funerals. The way students play taps in band performances is a little bit different than we would play it at funerals. Hmm. Really, in the beginning of the training, we try to break down all the barriers because it is stressful even if, like, in a funeral when it's a solo and you're the only one up there and the cue may be kind of vague. So we really try at the training to prepare them for that in any way possible. So we invite a local volunteer rifle team and we give the students each the opportunity to play taps after that rifle's fired because a lot of times it's a little bit of a shock when you're at your first funeral and you're not used to hearing the rifle fired right behind your head. Mm. It can be kind of strange. So we really want to prepare them for that. The illustrious conductor Gerard Schwartz talked about his own initiatives to educate the general public about music. What I really wanted to do was have an effect, if I can be so bold, 
on society to appreciate classical music. I believe that if people were involved in classical music, we'd have a better world. And more of that great interview can be found in episode 22. Shifting gears a little bit, in an episode about compositions that were intended to depict different animals, we had a classroom corner segment not about music's impact on the student, but how music impacts animals themselves. In an episode specifically about birds being the muse for various compositions, we interviewed one of the foremost experts in birdsong, Dr. Donald Krudzma, and for that classroom corner segment, we talked specifically about how birds learn their songs. So I'll play you a segment from that interview, but first a little from that classroom corner about music's impact on the animal kingdom in general. According to the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra website, dogs relaxed when listening to classical music and showed increased stress when listening to heavy metal. For seven days, researchers placed dogs in either a silent environment or one with classical music. Dogs in both silence and classical music environments exhibited more relaxed behavior than in noisy kennels. However, dogs listening to classical music displayed even fewer signs of stress and less variation in heart rate. A Glasgow study reaffirmed the result that classical music was more relaxing for dogs than silence, and certainly more relaxing than heavy metal, which seemed to have a detrimental impact on canine anxiety levels. The harp has been found to be particularly soothing to the animal kingdom, and when it comes to plants, plants have been known to respond positively to music. So it's not only young people, but all of nature, which can be positively impacted by the wonders of music. So are birds learning, so to speak, from their older counterparts, and are they practicing, as we might term it? These songbirds that we talked about, true songbirds, the one with the specialized brains and the complex voice boxes, they are specialized at imitating songs of other individuals. So when a young bird is with, and let's talk about typical North American birds where only the male sings. Those young birds are listening to dad sing. They memorize, they listen, and then they practice. Uh, they babble. A young bird babbles just like a human baby babbles because both the young bird and the human child are listening to their own sounds as they produce these sounds and trying to match what they're saying or singing with what's already stored in their brain. So a lot of these birds, these songbirds, they imitate in remarkable precision, what adults around them are singing. That was an interview with Dr. Donald Krudzma, one of the world's most respected experts on bird song. And he was talking to us about how birds learn their various songs, which served as our classroom corner in an episode about the inspiration birds had on compositions throughout history. Back to music as relates to human beings, we had a couple classroom corners that specifically addressed music's general benefits on the brain and our thought processes. In an episode about the Celtic influence on standard music history, we explored a device used by the Irish minstrel bards that is also used in music education. That is how music is a powerful tool for training our memories. I won't play that today because it is excerpted as a featured track on our SoundCloud page. It's called Why Music Makes the Best Mnemonic. In another episode, we explored how our brains are drawn to melodies that we are already familiar with and how our brains can vary those melodies independent of how we first heard them. And then we also explored the idea of how imagery and imagination are used to teach music and how learning music 
can make you a more creative thinker. It was Albert Einstein, in fact, who told a friend, when I examine myself and my methods of thought, I come close to the conclusion that the gift of imagination has meant more to me than any talent for absorbing absolute knowledge. All great achievements of science must start from intuitive knowledge. The greatest scientists, Einstein said, are artists as well. And he told this to a groundbreaking music educator of the 20th century, Shinichi Suzuki. The theory of relativity occurred to me by intuition, and music is the driving force behind this intuition. My new discovery is the result of musical perception. Some of the Classroom Corner segments had to do with how music education provided benefits beyond the study of music. We already heard about the health benefits of singing in a choir, but in our Music for Education episode, we had a special segment where a then 17-year-old pianist read an essay she had written about what piano lessons had taught her about life. Here is Alexa Turgeon, who now helps a great deal with the production of this program. I'm 17 and I've played piano for about 12 years. I've received a lot of useful instructions from my piano teacher, and the more I've reflected on them, the more I've realized that they are also valuable lessons for life in general. Here are four instructions I commonly receive in piano that also apply to life. The first thing I hear a lot is that the melody must be the loudest. In life, this means you must prioritize. With piano, no matter how many busy things are in a piece, it's important to be able to hear a main theme. Likewise, there are parts of life that must be the most present, prioritized, and emphasized. There are other elements in music, and life, that add nicely to the tapestry, but they must never overpower the melody. If you can't hear the main theme clearly, the piece is confusing and not as enjoyable as it could be. Without priorities, our lives can also be confusing and far less enjoyable. The second thing I hear a lot in piano lessons, loosen up. It's so easy to hold tension when playing piano. I once played Chopin's Butterfly Etude, which was almost exclusively octaves in the right hand, and I held tension in my wrist instead of keeping it loose and floppy. As a result, Playing the piece not only hurt, but I also had trouble getting it up to speed. In life, I've learned if we get set in our ways, we get slowed down. We can't get caught up in doing things a certain way. We must always be ready to change things up to get better results. If we are too stiff and refuse to change, it will really hurt our progress. The third instruction I have, put your weight into it. Certain parts of pieces simply can't be as loud as the composer intended if the pianist doesn't fully lean into the keys. Putting your weight into playing is the difference between playing all right and being impressively deafening. In life, the same rule applies. We have to put all of our effort into everything we do. We can't just go through the motions. I've learned that if we throw ourselves into every activity, the results will be impressively powerful. The fourth and final lesson I've learned from playing the piano. Accuracy is more important than speed. Playing fast is great, but if playing fast means messing up more, missing notes, or losing all musicality, then it's more beneficial to slow down just a little bit and take the time to play everything correctly. I've learned the same in life. Don't rush through things just to finish them quickly. We should strive to do everything as perfectly as possible. Any sane person would rather see work done well than work done quickly. Of course, as in piano too, if you can do things rapidly as well as accurately, that's even better. So, if life gets a little hectic, if it's hard to keep focused, make sure the melody is the loudest, that the priorities are right. That will clear up all confusion. If you feel stuck, like you can't get any better in a certain area, loosen up and try to do things differently. It could even speed up your progress. When you do anything in life, put your weight into it. That can maximize your results. And remember, accuracy is more important than speed, so take the time to do things right. These are four piano keys to life that I've learned. There are many more keys, probably even over 88, but hopefully these few will be a good start to playing life more beautifully. 
That was pianist Alexa Turgeon, then 17 years old and now working as a part-time staffer for this program. She talked about what life lessons she learned from taking piano. As I said before that clip, the Classroom Corner segments of our program talked about the non-musical benefits of studying music. In an episode about the great many composers who originally intended to be lawyers, (laughs) we talked about how music education can actually prepare the student for non-musical careers, and we showed some famous examples. Here's a snippet from that. According to a New York Times piece from October 12, 2013, many leaders of industry are shown to be well-trained musicians, some even attending college on full music scholarships. For example, Condoleezza Rice, trained to be a concert pianist. Alan Greenspan was a professional clarinet and saxophone player. There are many others, such as television broadcaster Paula Zahn, cellist, NBC chief White House correspondent Chuck Todd, French horn player, and Woody Allen, who says he practices the clarinet 30 minutes a day just to keep his embouchure strong, his mouth muscles. Even though he never intends to make a career out of playing music, he says, I have to practice every single day to be as bad as I am. So the effects of music on other disciplines extend far beyond the famous music and math connection. Many high achievers of industry who have also excelled in music explain that music opened them to more creative ways of thinking. Paul Allen, the billionaire co-founder of Microsoft, says music reinforces your confidence in the ability to create. And that White House correspondent, Chuck Todd, says there's a connection to a drive for perfection. I've always believed the reason I've gotten ahead is by outworking other people. And he adds that it's a skill learned by playing that solo one more time, working on that one little section one more time. He adds, there is nothing like music to teach you that eventually, if you work hard enough, it does get better. You see the results. You are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. In today's episode, we have explored various aspects of music education by reviewing or playing segments from our program's Classroom Corner segments, which was a significant feature in our first two seasons, and I thought it would be extremely beneficial to have these condensed in one episode. We have also been listening to a few musical examples that relate to this subject, compositions that were intended to have a certain educational value, either a study or a piece written for or dedicated to a student. We played similar examples on an episode in the first season, Music for Education. That is episode 9, and you can find that in the archives at kpcg.fm. Our programs are also archived on iTunes and SoundCloud, and at SoundCloud we also have specific segments that have been excerpted from various longer episodes so they are easier to consume. I referenced a couple of those today, so be sure to check that out. So we just heard an excerpt from a classroom corner where I was talking about how music education actually prepares the student for non-musical careers even. I thought that would be a good one with which to start winding down the program. In our final segment of Classroom Corner, in the last regular episode of season two in an episode about the great unfinished works of music history, we talked about how music education is something that never ends. We'll conclude today's episode with that segment and then tack on one more musical example, this one from the 20th century. In that Music for Education program, we discussed the revolutionary Hungarian composer Béla Bartók, who wrote numerous short pieces for the young pianist, though we didn't have time to play any of those examples. The pieces we referenced were found in two collections. One collection was called Microcosmos, a six-volume set of 153 short pieces, the first two volumes of which were dedicated to Béla Bartók's son. 
He also wrote a four-volume set of piano pieces called Four Children. So we will hear numbers 6 and 21 from the first volume of Four Children, and we will hear it in a 1945 recording of the composer himself playing. Michael Miller wrote this toward the end of his music theory book, An Idiot's Guide to Music Theory. If you choose to make music a part of your life, your education never ends. Every song you listen to, every piece of music that you hear is an opportunity to learn more about the music you love. Keep your ears open and your mind free, and you'll continue to expand your knowledge and skills for the rest of your musical life. And that's the end of the quote. Certainly someone who has learned music from a young age can still learn more when older, partly because of the life experiences they can add to their development as an artist. There are never enough years in a lifespan to bottom out everything there is to learn about this art form. As composer Sergei Rachmaninoff said, music is enough for a lifetime, but a lifetime is not enough for music. You have been listening to Music for Life, a production of KPCG 101.3 on the FM dial in Edmond, Oklahoma. From the Herbert W. Armstrong College campus, I'm Ryan Malone. Thanks for joining me.